I think that the real danger here is that it creates a kind of atmosphere of falsity. It is the week of February 1st, and welcome to episode 64 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, we have a special treat for you. NSI Senior Fellow Lester Munson will be doing not just one, but two deep dives with NSI authors. The first interview will feature NSI Visiting Fellow Matthew Ferraro, author of The NSI Backgrounder, entitled Decoding Deepfakes. The second interview features NSI Visiting Fellow Vince Fitkowski and his co-author Rashida Meshari on their NSI Law and Policy paper responding to China at the United Nations. But first, let's talk about the impact of the emergence of deepfakes on national security. All right, let's start at the very beginning. What are deepfakes and why are they a problem? So the term deepfake is a portmanteau of the words deep learning, which is a branch of artificial intelligence, and fake. And when we talk about a deepfake, we mean a piece of synthetic media, and it can be text, it can be images, audio, or video that is either manipulated or wholly generated by artificial intelligence. The simple definition that I carry around in my head is that it's a very convincing media forgery created by computers. Now you asked, why are they bad? Well, because the forgeries can be really quite convincing. And, and some of that has to do with the technology that's used. The technology behind a deep fake is uh, our computer systems called generative adversarial networks or GANs, where one algorithm called the generator creates content modeled on source data, while a second algorithm called the discriminator tries to spot the artificial content. And the competition between the two produces a better and better fake until the discriminator can no longer identify the forgery. So it is in that competition that you get this really sophisticated false media. So faithful listeners, a uh, portmanteau has a couple of definitions. One of them is a word blending the sounds and combining the meanings of two others. For example, motel from motor and hotel or brunch from breakfast and lunch. So deepfakes also a portmanteau. Thank you, Matthew. That was, uh, that was some terrific... Uh, there was a terrific opportunity to do some etymology there. Thank you. So let's go really big picture. Let's say hypothetically you're making a Star Wars movie and you want to have Princess Leia as a character. Of course, the actor who traditionally portrays her has passed tragically. If you came up with a deep fake to get her into the movie somehow, is that so bad? Well, right. I mean, I think it wouldn't be so bad if you have the permission of her family. And indeed, something similar like that happened in the most recent Star Wars where uh, Carrie Fisher died what, some five years ago, and with the permission of her family, they, they basically spliced together footage that they had of her originally from previous shoots to, and sort of rewrote the script to bring her into the movie. But there is an option here, at least increasingly so, of, of actually creating a person out of whole cloth or creating a deceased uh, actor out of whole cloth. And I mean, the question is, is that so bad? Well, first of all, you'd want to respect the rights of the of the person who died. And I'll just point out that New York just created the first statutory right to a digital replica, it's called, uh, in, its, in its laws. It's going to go into effect in a couple months that says that if you are a, an actor and, you, and you're in New York and you die, you're, you, um, your heirs are able to register your, your digital replica uh, with the state and you can get royalties for 40 years because of that. And they did that uh, after being pushed by the Screen Actors Guild to protect the rights of, of individuals. So is it so bad? I mean, I think, you know, in a circumstance like that, where you have the support of the person who owns the rights or their heirs, and it's a purely uh, fictional characterization, 
it's not so bad. But I think that the real danger here is that it creates a kind of uh, atmosphere of falsity where you're going to have more and more things where you're just not sure if they're true or false. And this is especially bad when you think about the fact that increasingly, for lots of reasons, people are inhabiting their own realities where whether or not something is true is just like not a relevant criteria, right? It's, it's whether or not it feels right. Uh, and I think that does have serious implications for politics, for national security, for economic security, and personal privacy. So even though the, the technology may be at its early stages, ha- have there already been some examples of deep fakes being used in a, in a really negative manner that have, have impacted society in some way? Sure. Well, the, the first one to mention is this, uh, what's referred to as non-consensual deep fake, deep fake pornography. Um, and uh, that's a personal issue, of course, but it's a, it's a prevalent one. And what that basically is, is where you take a non-consenting person's face and you put it on a nude body to create a very realistic looking nude image. And it's a major problem for actors, especially women, almost entirely women. There was one study that came out in 2019 that said at that point, 95% of all the deepfakes that were online were of non-consensual deepfake pornography. And then it's there was a recent story about a, an app in Telegram that was uh, people, people could send in photographs of regular women and they would create uh, basically fake nude images using this, this AI system. And that affected the hundreds of thousands of just regular women. And so, so that, of course, is of great consequence to the people involved. It's a real you know, transgression on their dignity. But there are other examples, too. I mean, the real nightmare scenario of like a false yet believable video of the U.S. president announcing a missile strike in North Korea that goes viral before it can be debunked. Like, thankfully, that has not yet occurred. But there are several examples that illustrate, you know, that these things could happen. From the world of politics, in early 2020, environmental activists in Belgium used AI to generate a fictional speech by the Belgian Prime Minister uh, Sophie Vilmez. Someone can correct me if I got that pronunciation wrong, in which she claimed that COVID-19 was directly linked to the exploitation and destruction of the natural environment. So they took, you know, authentic video of hers and they used machine learning, which is a branch of AI, to manipulate the words. So she spoke, uh, she spoke the words that they put in her mouth, basically. And of course, one can imagine situations in which that has very significant consequences for, for politics. I mean, economic security is a major issue, too. I think fraud is a concern of mine and on behalf of my clients. And there's an example in March of 2019, an international insurer reported that one of its clients, a a UK-based energy company, lost about a quarter million dollars after a company official wired money to a telephone caller who impersonated the parent company's CEO with AI-based software. Um, And these are things I think could happen with greater rapidity. I mean, at one point, uh, one thing that I should point out is that something like 70 plus countries have state-sponsored disinformation units, and these outfits could pretty easily use manipulated media to target the lifeblood of adversaries or promote national champions. And think about like a a Chinese, um, Chinese state propagandist promoting a convincing fake video of the crash of an American autonomous vehicle to undermine confidence in the U.S. company and to promote the Chinese auto manufacturer. Like that could very easily happen. So this has even impacted uh, countries as remote as Gabon in Central Africa. Can you tell us what happened in Gabon in 2018? Yeah, that's that's really uh, um, an interesting example. So so there, the president, Ali Bongo, had been sick for a long time, and he was abroad. He was out of the country and kind of largely out of sight. He wasn't doing press or anything. And so then he released a video 
basically to prove that he was still alive. But he had had, um, he was clearly ill. I think he had had some Botox and his eyes looked kind of funny. And military opponents of the president claimed that the video that he had released was in fact fake. They said it was a deep fake and that Bongo was incapacitated or dead and the conspiracy spread. And within a week, the military launched a coup, you know, took over the radio station and menaced the, the population. I should say the coup was put down and everyone who was involved was arrested or killed. But that that showed just the dangers of what happens when people start to think that these the deepfakes are a possibility. And actually, incidentally, Les, this raises another issue, which I, I mentioned briefly in my paper, uh, and that's called the liar's dividend. And that's a term that was coined by uh, professors uh, Chesney and Citrone. And that is that the mere, the idea is that the mere knowledge of deepfakes, that they exist, can allow someone to deny the authenticity of genuine content by claiming that the genuine content is a deepfake, so that the liar accrues this dividend. Um, and then I, I came up with something just the other day. I could, let's see if this, if this uh, goes viral here or less, but I call it the zealot's dividend. And that's the phenomenon when zealots or partisans dismiss inconvenient media evidence that does not fit within their chosen narratives because it's a manipulated deepfake. And we saw that most recently in the U.S., you know, there was the Capitol insurrection on the 6th of January. On the 7th, uh, President Trump released a video statement in which he condemned the rioters. And on on Parler, um, his partisans, his zealots said, oh, this is a deepfake. Uh, because Trump would never betray us. And this is clearly the deep state uh, out to get us and to convince us that that we were in the wrong. So you talked about the insurrection. Yeah, it's really impossible to imagine uh, fraud on the internet leading to people trying to change their government in uh, totally illegal and irresponsible ways. But let, let's talk more generally about our wonderful country where you know Americans have had a, a long history of buying into some nutty conspiracy theories. A lot of people think we faked the moon landing. They thought 9-11 was an inside job. Some people think there are, that humans are lizards in disguise. Uh, there's space lasers starting wildfires in California. There's all kinds of crazy stuff out there. Do you think deep fakes could be exploiting some of that natural instinct of Americans to, to buy into these conspiracies? Oh, absolutely. And, and I think that, again, the, the January 6th insurrection is instructive because the people who ransacked the Capitol and you know, sought to stop the county of electoral votes were lied to. I mean, they were victims of disinformation. And that disinformation was as basic as it could be, right? It was like just spoken or written lies, libel or slander, basically. And, and imagine how much worse the delusions could be and how much more widespread they would be if there was believable video of, say, an election worker in a Biden t-shirt shredding Trump voter votes, rather, or voters themselves. Um, you know, I, I just think that the, the problem with um, with disinformation when it gets this sophisticated is that it feeds on a lot of the natural tendencies that you just outlined. I'd also say briefly about why I think disinformation is spreading as it is, um, is because of the interconnectedness of, of media today. I mean, the, in an earlier time, there was like some people in every town, right, who thought that the moon landing was fake, but they were more or less isolated from each other. And now what's happened with media is that they've been able to go out and find Confederates of people, other people who believe in this stuff, and they, they can radicalize each other. Not only was the moon landing fake, but 9-11 was an inside job and, and you know, lizards are people or people are lizards or whatever. And, um, and that I think has had a, a really unanticipated effect. And so then add to all of that the accelerant of deep fakes and manipulated media. And I think you're in for a real mess. So you, you've kind of stolen my next question. I was going to ask you why deep fakes are any worse than 
you know, Photoshop or just, just plain out lying, but it's, it's, it's the combination of the technology with the amazing ability of a single individual to contact almost anyone else on the planet instantaneously that is really perhaps the bigger concern here. It's, it's how fast something can grow and metastasize. I, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, I think that, you know, like bearing false witness is like an ancient vice, like one of the, one of the, one of the cardinal vices, right? And, um, and yet what's different today, right? Well, I think one of it is the speed, uh, the scale, the credulity of people and the the believability of media. But I do think that there's kind of essentially a paradigm shift, right? Because you're right. I mean, you know, the, the manipulation of media of photographs is as old as the 19th century, right? Um, but maybe if I could use an analogy, the firebombing of Tokyo, which was accomplished with conventional munitions in 1945, killed more people than the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And and yet it was the latter events that led to the essentially immediate surrender of Japan and also led, we should say, to the, you know, the non-use of nuclear weapons for uh, heretofore, hopefully, hopefully forever, but heretofore. And so the question is sort of why? Well, the, the atomic age was a paradigmatic shift, right? It, it, it radically changed the efficiency and lethality of weapons. It created all these second order effects in terms of radiation poisoning and the rest. And I do think that in some way, if it's not a stretch of the metaphor, deep fakes are a form of atomic deception, right? I mean, that they will become cheaper. They'll become easier to create. Their quality gets better and better because of the technology that I outlined above. And they'll be deployed more broadly by more people. The ability to create deep fakes will be as easy as opening an app on your phone. And that's a kind of like democratization of violence that I think um, makes it different than the painstaking effort to say like Photoshop, edit uh, photographs to change them. So where do we stand on uh, the impact of deep fakes on our national security? Is our, our security services able to identify and deal with the, this phenomenon? Or is this something where, where we're playing a little bit of catch up? So I, I definitely think that all is not lost. You know, there, there are, um, you know, DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency is looking into this. There is a lot going on, I guess, in sort of three spaces. Uh, you know, I'm a former Intel guy. I talk about everything in three. So the, fir- the first is technological, right? The second is sort of legislative. And the third is sort of bucketed as, as social and technological. I mean, there are basically two technologies or technological ways, I should say, to, to counter deep fakes, right? One is once you've created the media, the technology tries to detect whether it's true or false. And, it, you know, just a couple months ago, Microsoft launched a new tool to spot deep fakes. It gives like a confidence rating on analyzed pictures and videos to see whether or not they're manufactured or, uh, artificially. The one trouble with that kind of technology is that because of the iterative nature of deepfake production, it's um, you're always sort of playing catch up because the deepfake is getting smarter as it, almost by definition, it has to have beaten the discriminator to create the deepfake. So, um, so you're always sort of paying, playing catch up. And even um, actually just uh, noting the, uh, the Ali Bongo, uh, Gabon incident, they had, they did actually run that video through a deep fake detector. And they said, oh yeah, like 99% sure that this is fake. But of course people had the narrative and they, they ran with it. The second way uh, is to verify photographs at the point of capture and in such a manner that they cannot be altered or modified after the fact. And this is called like uh, image provenance. And again, this is another technology that's actually going pretty quickly or at least advancing with some speed. In October of this past year, Qualcomm and a startup called TruePic announced that they would embed a photo and video verification tool leveraging this technology within smartphone chips so that you could like buy a, a, a camera phone 
probably this year. Uh, and when you take a photograph, it's going to embed it with metadata so that if anyone ever alters that, that photograph, you're going to be able to go back to the original and know. And I think that's the kind of thing that our defense agencies are going to be focusing on, whether, for instance, they require uh, sometime in the future, all photographs that are DOD photographs to be taken with image provenance technology so that they could not later be uh, manipulated without without anyone knowing about it. The second thing uh, I'll just say briefly is legislation. There's actually been a lot of legislation in this space. I think considering how recent the technological developments are, about five states, uh, California, Maryland, New York, Texas, and Virginia, have adopted laws bearing uh, barring some deepfakes of uh, some form or another, usually those involved in uh, elections, like the target candidates or cheap to mislead voters, and the others that are in the creation of this deepfake pornography, which is so rampant. And then Congress itself, the U.S. Congress, has now passed several bills uh, uh, aimed at deepfakes. And they, while they don't outlaw anything in particular, they do what Congress typically does, which is direct reports and direct research on these issues. And I think that's an important first step when it comes to national security uh, concerns and addressing them. And then the third thing I'll just mention real briefly is what I sort of bucket as like society. And I think it's really going to be interesting to see how all the things that regulate our lives that aren't laws, how those are affected by concerns about manipulated media. I'll give you one brief example. There's a lot of, uh, there's an effort in the House now to change the House ethics rules, the House representatives, to um, to bar um, or make it an ethical violation for members to disseminate manipulated media and deepfakes. And that's a way of just sort of changing professional obligations. And I'm an attorney. And one thing that, we, that uh, we've talked a lot about in sort of this space in the legal profession is how are, uh, you know, the rules of professional conduct implicated by lawyers who are unscrupulous in, in admitting or seeking to admit synthetic media in court and treating it as real or not doing their due diligence to discover that it's fake. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that I think can help build up society's defenses against uh, the worst outcomes of disinformation. You can imagine, just based on on your last comments there about house ethics and, and other fora, that you could run into First Amendment issues here pretty quickly, knowing how folks in, in Washington, efficacy groups love to pounce on that issue right away, right? I mean, you're going to, that's, that seems, is that coming? Is that next? Oh, yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, Cass Sunstein at Harvard um, wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal really on this question. Could could you um, could, could you uh, bar or make illegal deep fakes? And uh, I think that there's some good questions. Uh, I think it's actually the better question I tweeted about this is um, is not can you make them illegal full stop? It's like, can you bar deep fakes that promote this or that kind of fraudulence? Right. And I'll give you an example. Right. Like if a deep fake is used to manipulate the stock market. Right. That, that, that would run almost clearly afoul of the securities laws and the securities laws are in some way a restraint on speech. So I think that's probably would be a clean cut case where you could bring a lawsuit or a criminal case the SEC could bring in. Um, you know, if the example that that Sunstein uses in his piece is is that it's not illegal or rather the Supreme Court, to be precise, they struck down a law that made it a crime to uh, what the, the phrase is steal valor to impersonate a um, you know, military veteran and try to derive benefits from, from uh, you know, claiming that you won the Medal of Honor or something like that. And they said, the Supreme Court said that that's, you, that First Amendment allows you to lie, be a real vicious liar, a sleazy liar, but it allows you to lie. And, and perhaps that's true. So you could make a deep fake of yourself getting your Medal of Freedom. But um, 
But if you uh, used a deep fake to defame someone, right, you could sue that person for defamation. So I, I do think that there that there are, of course, in all things, whenever there's there's government restraints on speech, there are First Amendment concerns. But uh, I just think that sometimes people say, oh, it's a First Amendment issue. It's a free speech issue and like throw up their hands without actually engaging in the in the precise circumstances. All right. Grant, what question am I not asking, Matthew? Yeah. So, uh, Matthew, you know, deep fakes came from sort of the, the worst parts of the Internet. Now Reddit is being weaponized to attack the stock market. So what are we not seeing that's going to be the next uh, way that will be attacked using Al Gore's Internet? <laughs> You know, you know, Grant, I think you're dating yourself. I'm not sure if people get that reference. Um, but uh, Al Gore famously claimed to have invented the Internet uh, when referring to the uh, Communications Decency Act, which in a lot of ways did create the Internet. So anyway, I think that he might have the last laugh. But um, yeah, I mean, first of all, on the, on the GameStop Reddit thing, I think we don't know enough exactly what went down uh, there. And if it is just the fact that people were not trading in misinformation, but just decided to all buy stock together. That's just like good old fashioned speculation, right? Like that's probably not um, anything that would, uh, that would involve this information. I do think that the larger issue is the one that I, I kind of pointed to before, which is just that the construction of differing realities. And that's going to be where sort of photographic evidence or media evidence becomes more like a painting, right? And we all look at the painting and we all see what we want to see in it. And to me, that is the great fear. And it's one in which deep fakes the um, you know the manipulated media is not the beginning of that story, uh, but it just makes the entire problem so much worse. Where you're going to be able to have not only your own ideas and your own views, but you're going to have your own media, and you're going to be able to produce your own videos that that basically confirm your views. And we saw this recently last year, or so I guess it was 2019, with the Nancy Pelosi video where they, she was made to seem. Uh, intoxicated. Remember that? They just sort of slowed down the video. And that was not manipulated in any kind of uh, advanced way. It's considered a cheap fake. And yet, I think people didn't even have to believe that it was real to believe that it showed some version of the truth, right? That they that they thought that maybe she wasn't actually drunk in this video, but she's probably a drunk. So this, you know, revealed some some innate truth. And I think that the lo- the, lo- the loss of a common set of facts and a common reality is a very significant national security danger because in some ways it gets to the very unity of our people. Great stuff, Matthew. Thank you for being on the podcast. Uh, fascinating. Yeah, this is wonderful. I, I would say I'm a, a big time listener. I'm a subscriber to Fall Lines. I hope everyone out there subscribes. Every week I learn something new. So it's a real pleasure to be with you. You are a terrific guest and thank you very much. Now, Let's move on to our conversation with Vince Vitkowski and Rashida Meshari on their law and policy paper entitled Responding to China at the United Nations. Vince, Rashida, tell us about this paper and what inspired you to write it. Well, it's a paper that addresses uh, what China has been doing at the United Nations over the last decade or so, uh, what we haven't been doing and what we might do uh, in response. We share the view that engagement in the UN system is really critically important. Like it or not, many things happen at the UN that are meaningful politically, economically, strategically, socially. China has figured that out, and we wanted to uh, highlight it. Just by way of, by way of background, uh, I, I'm a lawyer in uh, 
private practice my whole career. I've been uh, involved in international commercial dispute resolution. I've also had a longstanding interest in, in international and national security affairs with various uh, NGOs and other organizations. I, I live in New York, and the UN is more prominent to us and, and to you know those, those of you in D.C., where there's more opportunity for contact. And uh, along the way, I uh, I met uh, Rashida. I will tell you a bit about her. So I was interested in uh, this paper because after my time at the UN and also as uh, the organization was celebrating its 75th anniversary this year, I felt that it was important to reflect on the successes and the failures of the UN system and on how I could continue to contribute to its work. Rashida spent 30 years in Turtle Bay and uh, before retiring in a variety of senior positions in the, within the Secretariat. Thank you for your service, Rashida. So uh, one, of, one of the amazing facts for me, at least, about China at the, United, at the United Nations is that a Chinese citizen now heads four of the 14 major UN agencies. And except for France with two, no other nation has more than one. So by my amateur math, this means China leads almost a third of of the UN major agencies. How do you guys explain this amazing phenomenon? Uh, Like Woody Allen would, 90% of life is just showing up. I mean, they've made it, (laughs) they've made it a priority, uh, identified an opportunity and brought their resources to bear. They brought their economic resources to bear. They, just by size, they're the uh, number two uh, contributor in uh, financial contributions. They drop a few spots on overall, or you include targeted contributions, but they're really very strategic and deliberate in their targeted contributions. They put them into the agencies that they think will have the most impact on their trajectory. And, you know, and, and you... Would add to that the historic passive-aggressive love-hate relationship that parts of the U.S. <laughs> has has with the U.N. Uh, hasn't been embraced as as fully you know fully as it might. So we really uh, you know given current events uh, should first talk about the World Health Organization. We're living in the midst of a global pandemic. Uh, the role of China in that pandemic, the role of the WHO, have been directly implicated by a lot of critics. Uh, can you talk about what your research shows about China has sought to influence the WHO? Sure. I mean, first, it uh, sought to influence it by uh, making sure that its candidate got elected as the uh, director general. Uh, it was the principal supporter of uh, T- uh, Dr. Tedros and um, also serving as you know, he, the U.S. equivalent was, was the whip. It got all the votes <laughs> that he needed uh, to, uh, to get him uh, get him in place. By the way, the predecessor was also a Chinese national. Paying attention there. And what I'd really like to address now uh, is not what they're, what they're doing to influence, because they're all they're trying to promote their interests just as, as everybody does, but how they've used their influence to not do things. I mean, the biggest problem in the WHO uh, pandemic uh, puzzle or, is that it, China was slow. China was dishonest and slow in giving him information. And the WHO didn't exercise any independent critical judgment. Uh, it would, took what uh, China said and passed along. In January of last year, there's, there's no evidence of human-to-human transition. Well, there is. They were delaying in providing complete information, and they imprisoned people who gave correct information. Uh, the U.S. has been critical of, of all this, but not, we're not the only ones. 
the Europeans have as well, and uh, they've, they've been active. Some uh, respected European officials have uh, criticized the uh, WHO for overall dysfunctional management. And um, the largest part of that, or a large part of that, was its inability to get right information out of China as quickly as possible. To this day, I'll do, do it later, to this day, there's still not been an on-site visit. So President Trump, of course, announced that the U.S. would pull out of the WHO. That can't really happen until the middle of 2021. So everyone expects that President-elect Biden, once he actually takes office, is going to immediately reverse that decision and the U.S. won't actually exit the WHO. But Vince, Vincent Rashida, what's your, what's your assessment of that move by President Trump and what impact has it had on U.S. influence? in this important UN agency? I mean, we, I mean, we think it was a, uh, a disastrous move. We moved whatever influence we had. It left the playing field to China. It diminished U.S. credibility in putting forth proposed reforms or uh, proposals for change. In fact, the Europeans have kind of, you know, just, just left us in the dust, in the dust uh, on that. President Biden yeah, has said we're going we're gonna to rejoin. And we probably should, but we shouldn't just Rejoin. We should use whatever leverage we have in the moment to get whatever uh, reforms we can. Uh, we can. Uh, we shouldn't try to take the public lead because the world lacks the respect for the, for the U.S. right now uh, to uh, to give it the lead. But that's okay because uh, the, the Europeans have stepped up with proposals. Germany and France, in particular. So our best play is to work with the Europeans. Is, making sure that we're satisfied with their proposals and then try to add some of our proposals to be presented as their proposals to be presented to uh, WHO and, uh, and, and the UN. Uh, they have an interest uh, in, in listening, of course. So we, we contribute about 25% of the core budget uh, of the WHO. And what we don't uh, contribute, the Europeans are going to have to make up. So I want to get granular just for a few minutes. Uh, first thing, the Europeans call for an investigation of, into the response to the virus, or the WHO. And in fact, Dr. Tedros has agreed, Dr. Tedros has agreed. He's appointed investigators of his choosing. We think it would be more credible if uh, the Secretary General would add a few people of his choosing um, or start his own investigation. Now, strictly in the hierarchy, that may not, you know, follow the org chart because uh, the WHO is in, is in theory an autonomous agency, doesn't report to the Secretary General, but so what? Make it happen, you know, put the influence in. The proposals that have been made, <laughs> like cat and mouse, they've not been publicly announced or made public. They've just been shown to Reuters and a few other sources and uh, are kind of floating out there. The first one is that there should be greater transparency on national compliance and what that means is they should be able to call out the Chinese and others who are dragging their feet and not giving information in, in, in a timely fashion. Um, second, they, there has to be a mechanism for real-time, on-site, independent uh, epidemiological assessments of when this stuff is going on. Again, it's not in the international health regs. It's not accepted yet. And as I said, an expert, individual experts have not been to Wuhan. Uh, they're also calling for a more nuanced system to define health emergencies. Right, right now, the option seems to be that the WHO can declare a, a public health emergency of international concern or not much. 
That's <laughs> about what it can do. Think what you will about the, you know, these color-coded alert systems going back to the Department of Homeland Security and now now uh, Governor Cuomo in New York. There's something to be said for them. You know, the, the, the yellow zones, the orange zones, the red zones uh, as a way of focusing attention as a, as a, a crisis heightens. Now, the next thing I'm going to say is not a, a European proposal and it's probably a, uh, it's not one that's going to be warmly embraced, but but Tedros has to go. He has to be replaced. The world has lost confidence in his management. If you were a CEO, a prime minister, you know, a foreign minister, a football coach, you know, a leader of any kind, he'd be gone. And I think that has to happen. And then finally, um, the mandate of the WHO needs to be narrowed. Right now, it officially has like 200 separate mandates as part of the way it's funded and everything. But it, it, it does everything. Uh, it's, it, it opines on adolescent health and traffic accidents and sunburn and suicide and prisons and everything else. It should be focusing on two things, disease outbreaks and emergency response. So those are the sorts of granular proposals we think would help. Great stuff. Let's move over to another aspect of your paper that I, I found fascinating, which was um, your discussion of the Industrial Development Organization of the U.N., which is something that the U.S. left back in the 90s during, I believe, the Clinton administration, uh, because it was a a waste of, uh, perceived by the U.S. as a waste of resources and time and effort. Now, China has grabbed hold of this organization and is using it to advance its global agenda. Can you you talk about how they're doing that and what that means for us? Yes. um, While the U.S. lost interest decades ago, as you just mentioned, when it withdrew, from um, the UNIDO, the world changed since then, and um, China uh, saw it as an opportunity and seized it. In the last two decades, development has come to include not only the traditional infrastructure, like building bridges, roads, and uh, but the, it also telecommunications network and the internet architecture uh, developed, and they are essential now. So China has launched its uh, Belt and Road Initiative, spending hundreds of billions of dollars across the globe on projects in developing countries. Um, So it's influencing, of course, its traditional zone of influence, but it's also uh, Africa and uh, even Latin America and some European countries. What organizations at the UN are related to internet regulation and what is China's plan of action? Yeah, and let me set the stage that China really has two objectives uh, in, in, in this space. One is to get the UN to adopt and endorse technical standards, internet architecture, governance standards that would really facilitate content control and suppression of dissent. That's its first objective to do that. The second, it's seeking to promote norms of uh, and interpretations of international law that would protect its own cyber exploits. It, it, it thinks it's a bad idea to publicly identify uh, make public attributions of cyber attacks. Uh, I wonder why they say it does lead to international instability. And so that's the second. They're trying to, in addition to the technical side and the architecture side, there's the norms and law side. So the, in the uh, UN, the General Assembly can convene these things called subsidiary bodies, uh, which study uh, something. 
And there were three overlapping um, such bodies. Uh, the first is called the Group of Governmental Experts. And that's mostly a U.S., U.K., Western-driven group. Then there's an open-ended working group, suitable title, and that, that's a Russia-China initiative, uh, pushing some of the things that I spoke about before. And then there's the uh, open-ended committee of experts. Now, that's the full name is open-ended ad hoc intergovernmental committee of experts. And it's heading towards trying to adopt a treaty uh, against uh, cybercrime. The question is, how do you define cybercrime? <laughs> that would probably include, you know, stealing money from the Malaysian Central Bank. But it'll also include uh, government protests, things like that, dissent. And so they're likely to be trying to shape rules that will allow them the monitoring of dissidents, the banning of encrypted chat applications, and other, uh, and the blocking of apps and websites and networks and services that will allow the people to see what the government doesn't want them to see. In this, as part of this conversation, we should also mention not just these three subsidiary bodies. We should mention the uh, another agency called the International Telecommunications Union. It's been around a long time. Uh, its secretary general is a, is a Chinese national, and it works on technical standards. It's been trying unsuccessfully so far to take more and more jurisdiction over the Internet and governance and standards. So far, we've fought them off. We need to keep fighting them off. Uh, need to make that a priority. The kind of thing, you know, you say technical standards and you, so what does that mean? Well, it's stuff that will enhance uniform standards for things like facial recognition or video monitoring or vehicle surveillance so that, you know, not only can they surveil their own people, but if the rest of the world in the developing world adopts these standards, <laughs> there's a suggestion they can surveil the rest of the world. Let's talk about the Biden administration, uh, which I, I would say it's not un unfair to say that it is very likely going to embrace multilateral institutions almost as a matter of faith that they are inherently good and we should be engaging with them. Is there any risk to that? What should we be encouraging the new administration to do uh, to make sure it doesn't go too far in this area? Well, yeah, on that, the point is that we don't want to be impinging on, on our sovereignty. And the threat of that can be a little bit overblown sometimes. You know, it, 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 it's real, but it, it, it can be overblown. You're only impinging on sovereignty when you're playing with the international law, which is itself a nebulous concept. I mean, John, you and others would say it's just a political concept. It's not really a legal concept. But, but um, you have to remember the hierarchy of the law uh, in the states. Uh, the Constitution is on the top. And the Constitution has two provisions, the Supremacy Clause and the uh, Define and Punish Clause. Fight the tendency, the overwhelming tendency it has to go back to uh, the, the Iran Agreement, non-proliferation agreement. You call that a multilateral instrument. It's not anything. It, it didn't go to the Senate because it didn't have a chance in the Senate. went around all of the constitutional and political constraints. And we need to not let that happen. There's also, uh, in, in international law, a notion of, of customary international law, what you used to call the law of nations that maybe can bind our conduct in theory. But we can handle that. Uh, under the define and punish clause, Congress can say what is and is not a violation of international law. And uh, it, it can uh, legislate. It doesn't even have to. Uh, the uh, whole notion of customary international law is based on consent, near universal consent, no dissenters. Of, and so you dissent. I mean, the, the State Department issues a proclamation that the set of guidelines being sent out by this or that agency was uh, do not constitute, in our view, 
uh, uh, binding guidelines under customary international law. We need, we need to speak about, speak up about what isn't going to be binding, just to make sure that it's not binding. I would say that. I mean, that's that, that's it. otherwise we you know we, we do a lot of good in, in through international organizations. A lot of stuff that you know we can only get done that way. Uh, let me ask your opinion of something that I think is is largely true of the American people, or at least a good portion of them. Folks would say that China should be spending more at the UN, given the size of its economy. It's either the first or second biggest economy in the world, depending on how you measure it. Uh, should it be spending more money at the UN? Do you think that's a good idea? The U.S. in 2003 had contributed to the regular budget of the United Nations 25%. And Japan was the second contributor. And then China and the European Union altogether, of course, represent almost 40% if we take them as a block. But uh, separately, uh, it's lower than that. But in uh, 2003, I remember Ambassador Holbrook uh, negotiated very hard to impose the reduction of that contribution to 22-3%. I mean, 3% uh, percent less than uh, what the U.S. was used to pay. Of course, it was uh, a major problem to the UN because three uh, percent of budget represents a lot of uh, money, and of course, it was interrupting or delaying the implementation of a number of projects. But the US insisted on the reform also. In addition to the reduction of their budget, they also insisted on the reform to uh, make the organization more efficient, to streamline its operations and uh, reduce duplication even over the years. It it expanded in other areas like um, peacekeeping operations, for instance. I think there is also um, uh, assessed contributions uh, established for each country. Voluntary contributions could exceed the the assessed amount, but they are also approved with the agreements of other member states. It's not something that could be done under the table. That's why the U.S. or other the influent member states at the U.N. have to play a very active role because when they realize that a country like China is getting too influent so um, uh, uh, is impeding on their own interest. But instead of isolating, it's better to discuss uh, with them and try to reach um, uh, some understanding on uh, uh, the issues at stake. I look at it transactionally. I mean, you know, if they're not going to pay more money, who's going to pay more money? Well, it's probably going to be us. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the, the mere fact of a payment of money doesn't control everything. It, 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 it influences a lot of things, obviously, but it's not the end of the game. It's too multi-textured. It's too complex an organization. And so, I, I, yeah, let, 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 them, let them contribute. Watch what they're doing. React. Yeah, you, again, you need to make the distinction between the general assessed contributions and then the voluntary things, which are pinpointed. And some are good and some are bad. They contribute money to the peacekeeping uh, operation because they want their person in charge of peacekeeping. Why? Because it will give them better information uh, on the military capabilities of the uh, other countries in the uh, in the peacekeeping coalition. 
okay, as long as we know that that's what they're doing, we can deal with it. We can counter it. We can pay attention to it. But in terms of uh, sending, yeah, we'll take their China. We'll take their money uh, gladly. Grant, what am I neglecting to ask our uh, fine guests today? So I think the only question that I have to add to this really fascinating conversation is to, to go back to one of Vince's earlier points, right? Uh, Les and I are Washingtonians generally, although not directly at this moment. Um, and we tend to focus on inside the Beltway issues. So defense of the Pentagon, maybe we talk about state a little bit, USAID here and there. Where should pushing back against China at the UN fit amongst pushing back against them in other uh, areas of government? Yeah, I mean, it's a separate form. Uh, uh, it, it's not a zero sum. Like it or not, we're in a global competition with, with China. And the UN system, and we could talk more about what that term really means, but the, but the system is, is an important forum for shaping the contours and outcomes of that competition. It's not the only one. It's not as important as, you know, uh, uh, naval uh, fleets in the, uh, near, near, near the South China Sea, uh, but it's not irrelevant. So I can say you can't win a competition without even having players in, in, in the key positions. We're there anyway. So I, I, I don't see that the marginal cost of being aggressive and assertive and fair and balanced uh, at the UN is material, really. You know, we should do it along with everything else that we're doing. Maybe they, there could be a uh, a conflict uh, of, of uh, issues and positions on a case by case basis, but you assess those on a case by case basis. You know, there was a question that we we uh, also sort of floated that I was going to turn back on you, Les, because you have more experience. In it. What you know, what can Congress do to promote reform at the UN? Well, yeah, we know they control the budget. Uh, we know they can do joint resolutions to extend things. And But, but what do you think? What, what, what can they do to uh, promote reform? Well, as you point out, uh, the UN Charter is a treaty that the U.S. is a party to. The Senate has a direct role in approving of treaties. I think senators should be more involved in uh, the things that take place at the UN. We send observers to various things. I wish we would be more active in that and make it a higher profile issue. The, the legislative branch, I think, should be as engaged with our efforts at the UN as as it possibly can be, maybe not quite to the level of the executive branch, but senators should be there, members of, members of the House should be involved in what's going on in the UN. And we should also, frankly, demand that the UN pay more attention to its biggest funder, which at the end of the day is the US Congress. Uh, I think one of the issues, frankly, with the WHO is uh, they've they've neglected their, their Washington patron and constituent. And it's it's created a huge problem. And so I think uh, Congress has to be very aggressive in remedying that. Okay. Uh, yeah, Rashida and I discussed this a little bit before. And and, and just uh, to say that there's absolutely nothing untoward about uh, a bunch of senators having a personal meeting with uh, Gutierrez. And they should. Totally agree. Totally agree. Vince, Rashida, this was a great conversation. Uh, and it's a terrific paper. And I urge everyone to take a look at it. Many thanks to you guys for joining us today on the podcast. 
That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at MasonNatSec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing. Les Munson for hosting. And Grant Haver for his work as producer and director. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. Mm-hmm.